Welcome to Debased, a show about the current state of money with Jeff Dyson. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Happy Friday. Everybody listening, this is Jeff Dice from Monetary Metals. Another Friday afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern Twitter space, uh, talking this week on the heels of our discussion last week uh, about the possible 2024 candidates and what their views might be on monetary policy and the Fed. So we're going to be joined by some friends. I, I know that uh, Stephen Levera, I think, is going to attempt to join us. Uh, David Waugh from Coinbits, Peter St. Ange from Heritage, Jordan Schachtel from the Dossier Substack, I think, will be joining us. At the end of last week's space, this topic came up a bit, you know, what we might be looking for down the road. So I just wanted to cue things up a little bit. And this says, people who care about monetary policy, people who care about money, people who follow FinTwit, admittedly somewhat autistic bunch, but especially when you throw in sort of the libertarian Austrian end of things, uh, we tend to get pretty exercised by monetary policy and think about it, talk about it, read about it a lot more than normies do. It's just the nature of the beast. And so really going all the way back to the Ron Paul days, the 2008 Ron Paul campaign, you know, that was basically in the teeth of the great finance, the global financial crisis, which was unfolding that fall. And Ron in Congress had had some back and forth with Ben Bernanke famously talking about what is money. And so against all odds, Ron managed to make the Fed an issue in both his 2008 and 2012 campaigns. And this was really, really unusual because if you go back and look at presidential campaigns, heck, even if you look at them today, I mean, they really don't talk about the Fed much amongst economists, professional economists, academic economists, monetary policy was always considered sort of a backwater. And that was, you know, we talked about Alan Greenspan being the maestro and these brilliant technocrats. And it was just something that these monetary policy guys, these economists sort of ran off to the side, but it wasn't really for public consumption. It wasn't a campaign issue, all this and that. So 2008 comes along. Uh, we'd already had some tremors with the 2000-2001 uh, tech stock bubble. Then we have a housing bubble in 2008. We have the Lehman Brothers collapse. We have a banking fallout, a banking crisis. It becomes the everything bubble. And all of the sudden, far more normie types not just in America, but across the West, are starting to think about and talk about monetary policy. And, of course, we, most of us on this call, would probably like them to think about it maybe in broader terms, not just as uh, like the way we think of fiscal policy or the way we think of it, but in a broader, like a civilizational and cultural element. And I think Bitcoiners, uh, to their credit, have done a great job of tying so many ills in society to fiat money and you know the meme is bitcoin fixes this but it's really true there are an awful lot of things beyond just what we think of as the state of the economy uh, there's an awful lot of things which are affected by monetary policy which we don't much think about or talk about everything from family formation uh, you name it what kind of food we eat what kind of art we enjoy what kind of buildings we build i mean a lot of this has to do at the end of the day with uh, the carrot and the stick, the incentives, um, you know, interest rates, uh, the, the, you know, the, the possibility of borrowing money. So it's an interest, interesting thing to think about. And, uh, of course, we worry that most Americans don't much think about it. Supposedly, the economy is always the ultimate 
issue. That's what James Carville said back in the 90s when he was working for Bill Clinton. He famously said, it's the economy, stupid. I, I'm not so sure that that's true anymore. I mean, my God, if you look at the news just the last 24 hours, all we're talking about is this, you know, the Supreme Court permanent action case, for example. We're constantly talking about trans and guns and all kinds of issues. And against all odds, I mean, Joe Biden and his party underneath him managed to prevail or, or at least hold their own in the 22 midterm elections, which had they been purely a referendum on the economy, I think just by virtue of being the opposition party, the Republicans should have picked up lots and lots of seats and they didn't do that. So maybe we've reached this point where America and Americans have, have just sort of decided, well, we kind of peaked and we're not necessarily the greatest country on earth anymore, but things are still pretty good here and the economy sort of just muddles along. And yes, there's, there's better in times, but, but still, you know, what I care about is defeating woke or what I care about is defeating MAGA. I mean, it feels like that. It feels like that, but maybe it just feels that way to people like me who spend uh, too much time on Twitter. But uh, one bright spot, I think, is that some of the announced candidates for 2024 have actually brought up monetary policy. That you know, people like RFK Jr. and Vivek Ramaswamy, um, DeSantis, others have have begun to talk about it as an issue. So I think that's promising. Um, you know, the under 40s, especially the under 30s in this country, man, oh man, not only are they facing unbelievable housing prices. And college tuition prices and healthcare prices, especially after COVID, but then uh, you know car prices. Fifty thousand dollars is the average new automobile now. But then on top of that, to go out and borrow money, get uh, a home loan or a car loan, you know, eight ten percent. And yet, do we see the under forties and the under thirties flocking to uh, the right? you know, are, are talking, you know, saying monetary policy is the most important thing to them. No, they say equality is the most important thing to them or something. So it's a bit of a mystery, a conundrum. And I hope that, that, well, I, I certainly don't hope that economic conditions deteriorate, but if they do, uh, I just wonder whether we can overcome this inertia and, and maybe uh, encourage some of these candidates to go a little farther, a little deeper than they have. On monetary policy, because again, it used to be a non-issue. Neither party talked about it. Neither, you know, neither candidate in a presidential election talked about it. The public didn't care or think about it. But now, I think maybe more do than they did before. And for starters, I, I know that that uh, Peter St. Ange is with. You know, I want to start with Biden. Um, you know, Biden may or may I. You know, he's got probably the best chance of anybody to be president again. Um, he. He loves Lael Brainerd, who, you know, was um, <laughs> vice, vice chair of the Fed. You know, she went to his, she's now his top economic advisor in the National Economic Council. Um, he did, uh, he did redo Powell for another four-year term. That would expire midway through Biden's second term if he had one. And I, I when I look at Lael Brainerd, I think of someone who's well to the left of Jerome, uh, who is, you know, what the left loves. She's daughter of diplomats. She, you know, went to Harvard. She's McKinsey. She checks all the boxes. And I would argue she's maybe even more MMT adjacent than Janet Yellen. So, Peter, I guess let, let's start with Joe Biden. Does this guy have a coherent notion of, of monetary policy? 
Yeah, thanks, uh, Jeff, and thanks for having me on. Um, you know, Biden has the support of the people who count the votes. So, you know, I think uh, our first assumption would be he's the most likely uh, winner in 2024. And I think you're right. Leo Brainerd, uh, who, you know, a lot of people were pushing her for Powell's job. And I would call her an MMT erp. Uh, Biden has put out another couple of people, um, has tried to appoint them to the Fed, either attempted or succeeded. So Lisa Cook, who had been pushing for racial quotas on Wall Street, Sarah Raskin, who wants climate change to dominate banking. Uh, he put out Sol Omarova, who wants to nationalize the banking system. So, you know, whether it's Biden or whether it's handlers, they have been very far to the left, in other words, to the inflationist side of even Jerome Powell. And I think a lot of us, you know, we criticize Powell so much for the money printing. And it's kind of sobering to remember that Jerome Powell is a centrist. I mean, he was appointed by Trump. He is what passes for a conservative uh, Fed chair. And so after him, it gets a lot worse. And if Biden wins another term, then, you know, he's going to get to appoint a lot more people onto the uh, board. I think we are going to see a much more inflationist Fed. And also, you know, remember that equity and the climate. We're going to see a Fed that is paying a lot more attention to those kinds of politicized issues as opposed to sticking to its knitting. Yeah, it is amazing if you follow the Fed's press off Twitter. I mean, the stuff they tweet it <laughs> It's just unbelievable. Half the time it's got nothing to do with monetary policy. It's a, a lot of it is about getting more women into the economics profession. Uh, sometimes it'll be stuff about climate. It'll often be times, oftentimes be stuff about equality or equity or, or whatever it might be. Um, but what, what about Biden himself? Do you think, Peter, that he, I mean, it, does he know anything about monetary? But I don't even know if he was ever on Senate banking. He was on Senate Judiciary, I know. Um, he, he doesn't strike me as a guy who's animated by any of this. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the subtext that I'm sure we're going to be getting into here is that, you know, if we take Biden and Trump as kind of the legacy candidates in a way, uh, neither of them are particularly interested in monetary policy. They both, let's see, the Wall Street Journal said they are both uh, free money, weak dollar advocates. Basically, both of them see the Fed as a useful piggy bank. Uh, they want rates to be low so that the economy does well, so they can win the next election. Um, you know, and when it comes to the Fed, neither have displayed much intellectual curiosity or much of a sense of mission to push it either direction. So I think that Biden is just sort of obeying the activists uh, who brought him to the dance. And, you know, he's repaying them with these radical candidates. I don't think he himself, even... Even when he had his entire brain at his disposal, I don't think he put a whole lot of thought into the Fed. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, Joe Biden's not animated by anything. But <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, here's the thing is Jerome Powell is well to the right of Biden, whatever that means, in, in whatever sense I, I mean that. But, you know, none He's of He's less inflationary, yeah. Yeah. I mean, never. You know, Ben Bernard or, or Alan Green book written about him, The Maestro. Ben Bernanke wrote that self-adulating book, that that like self, uh, I should say, self-hilating book, uh, where where he basically called himself a hero <laughs> for his, you know, for his role in the in the financial crisis. And of course, Janet Yellen, you know, was the first female chair, and it seems like they're almost due for 
Paul guy. And and if if things do go south, you know, Jerome Powell as the, the you know, the hawk who raised rates relentlessly. I mean, Wall Street's going to hate the guy's guts. The commercial real estate is going to hate this guy's guts. The auto and, you know, the whole com- uh, resident- residential real estate lobby is going to hate this guy's guts if things don't change. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he strikes me as someone that that the left generally and Biden more specifically could like push off as a scapegoat. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there were a lot of people who were asking why Powell didn't drop out when things started turning south. Uh, he had his chance when he was up for re-election and, you know, he could have declared victory, gone home and left the next guy with the mess. Uh, and he didn't. And I think without a doubt, Powell has no friends on the left. Uh, they will throw him under the bus. And fundamentally, that's what they, you know, whether it's Newsom or, I mean, really across the board among Democrats, they've been pushing to lower rates not because of any sophisticated Austrian analysis of, you know, changing the rates too fast and you get the boom and the bust and none of that stuff, just simply print more money, please, whatever you do, print Mm. more money. And, you know, this has been basically the platform of the Democrats ever since the beginning, the Federal Reserve is whatever you do, print more money. And then the Democrats or the Republicans have, you know, sort of been the guys who come and clean up the mess here and there. And I think in recent decades, they've given up on that concluded it's a thankless task. And so now we have a bipartisan uniparty inflation uh, to enjoy. Yeah, but imagine if as a country, we talked as much about Jerome Powell and Lael Brainerd and Neil Kashkari as we do about Supreme Court justices. You know, imagine if we knew as much about them and, and, and cared as much about their nominations and, and fretted about who the next president would appoint to the Fed. And we really should, if you think about it. Oh, we absolutely should. Those things are far more important. And that's part of what, you know, Mises, uh, what all of us try to do is they decorate monetary policy with so much jargon and smoke and mirrors. And, you know, it's this almost religious process where Jerome Powell's out, uh, uh, Powell comes out, he stands at the altar and all of the, you know, assembled uh, plebes bow down before him. And, you know, we all try to break through that and make people understand how, how corrupt, how dirty how craven this system is. This is institutionalized theft. And with the kicker, it would be one thing if it was just theft. But of course, with the kicker, it then savages the economy. It causes depressions and inflation, all these horrible things. And so a lot of what I think all of us on this call here, uh, Jordan, Stefan, uh, we all try to make people understand, you know, what is the scam? Uh, What are they doing to you? And why this stuff is a heck of a lot more important than student loans. Well, let me let me ask Jordan. I know I, I see that he joined us. Jordan, what do you think about Trump? I, I know he's a real estate guy and he used to talk about how low rates were good for him, but bad for savers. Uh, you think he's got any more uh, monetary policy understanding than Biden? Um, <clears throat> thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, I think Trump is kind of a mixed bag. As his legacy has shown, you know, he tried to appoint Judy Shelton, who's like a big uh gold or pro gold person to the fed and it didn't really work but you know then at the end of close to the end of his tenure he infamously you know was demanding the printing of trillions of dollars um to supposedly you know fight the pandemic and all that so i think he's very much a mixed bag um i'm I'm a big bitcoiner and i think that at least at the very least a trump presidency would be less hostile to bitcoin um 
because there's that, you know, I think the left has much more of a central planning impulse than kind of like the new right or Trump right or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, at the end of the day, they, I think Trump and Biden, whether they know it or not, um, are kind of just like passive Keynesians, essentially, like they're just propagandized by modern monetary theory, whether they realize it or not. Um, and I, I think that, you know, there, we, there is no, per you're right, like that there is nothing close to a perfect candidate on monetary policy in the Fed. Um, but, but I think, you know, when, when push comes to shove, when there's a manufactured emergency, you get to see what people really believe. And, you know, when they, they, they talk a lot about, you know, wanting to set rates a certain way. But um, we saw what Trump did uh, during the you know, so-called pandemic and what he did sp specifically to Thomas Massey, who just wanted uh, mm. Congressman Thomas Massey, who just basically wanted a voice vote on the trillions of dollars spent. And Trump basically pledged to to primary him. Uh, that effort was unsuccessful. But I think it really showed that um, the bottom line is that he's uh, he's central planning light, whereas the Biden administration is more central planning heavy. Well, it's interesting. You bring up Judy Shelton. People may not remember. I mean, Judy Shelton, she kind of comes from, she was at Hoover for a while. She comes from the Larry Kudlow, you know, king dollar, strong dollar. Lot, let's have lots of export school. And, and, and that's fine, you know. But she's a very sweet person, smart lady, and she, she really liked gold. She said some nice things about it. And, oh my, I mean, talk about Trump derangement syndrome. I don't know if people remember. This was uh, 2020, I think. In, so when Trump, or, or no, my, a couple years after that, when Trump nominated her, I'm sorry, I don't remember the year for the Fed, like the economics profession went nuts. They sent that open letter. It had like 130 economists, I think six or seven Nobel Prize winners, including Stiglitz. And they basically said, you know, she's totally unfit. We can't have her. And, and so I had known a little bit about her just tangentially prior to that. And I, you know, I started doing some digging and I was like, you know, she'd grown up. She was like the anti-Lael Brainerd, where she grew up in a rural area. You know, she went to University of Utah, for God's sake. You know, she wasn't part of the club. We, we got to have, uh, you know, everybody's got to have gone to Wharton or Harvard or Yale or Columbia, you know, she's not part of the club when, when at the Fed. And that was, to me, just so outrageous that anyone thinking outside the box that had questioned, I, I recall she had questioned, among other things, you know, the rate setting function, whether this is something the Fed ought to be doing, um, why it's so powerful, whether we need a Fed at all. That's, that's exactly the kind of person who ought to be uh, on the Fed's board to, to question things and act as a drag or a break or whatever it might be against the consensus. And that was, I mean, you know, to me, that was a very Trumpian uh, nomination. And she was treated very shabbily. That was just not right, Jordan. Yeah. And, you know, I want to add that the fact that Trump put Judy in there, I think, means that, you know, Trump's first instinct is anti-establishment. He is open to outsiders. Uh, as Jordan put it, I think he's, you know, I agree he's sort of a passive Keynesian, but fundamentally he would be a heck of a lot better than a Biden, I think, because he is willing to entertain people uh, who actually want to, you know, fundamentally change the Fed, whereas most establishment Republicans, for example, their the limit of their reform, the Fed, is to say, you know, the Fed needs to do a better job, and they haven't 
put much thought. Uh, they don't really entertain any kind of radical solutions like that. So I think it's clear that Trump is a lot better than Biden. For sure. I mean, what's unbelievable, though, is that there's the specter of Trump versus Biden again. I mean, is that really the 2024 race? Uh, it feels like if Biden has many more hiccups or if that that they're they're ready. In other words, if Biden get if somebody puts a shiv in Biden, it won't be Republicans. <laughs> right? Republicans are just absolutely powerless. They will be Democrats who want Gavin Newsom or Michelle Obama or whoever they want. It, it won't be Republicans if this guy's not the nominee. And, and it's starting to look like he is seriously, seriously unwell. And um, and his son, of course, has his own scandals. My take is that the American public is, is utterly uninterested in the Biden family scandals. So again, it'll be the Dems taking him out. If, if these scandals suddenly start to grow uh, in the mainstream media or something like that, you'll know that this is the Democrats, not the skillful Republicans. Um, so I think, I think uh, we, we should talk about some of these. There's some fresh candidates. I mean, it's kind of cool to have RFK in there, to have DeSantis in there, to have Vivek Ramaswamy in there. Um, I, I think Stefan's with us. I mean, let's start with that because I think, I, I believe, Stefan, all three of them have at least discussed Bitcoin favorably. That's correct. Yeah, thanks. Well, yeah, first of all, thanks for having me and great to speak with you guys, Jeff, Jordan, Peter, David. Um, and yeah, so RFK is probably the most, uh, let's say, pro-Bitcoin out of all the candidates. His speech at Bitcoin 2023 in Miami was it basically, as I understood it, it basically sounded like it was written by a Bitcoiner, basically. Like it, he had really gone through and mostly tried to hit all of the right notes that the Bitcoin audience would have cared about. And so he mentioned all kinds of things. He mentioned the Canadian trucker protest. He mentioned the freedom to hold Bitcoin and run a node and things like this. Uh, and uh, also tried to, let's say, tamper down some of his climate um, you know, hysteria a bit about it and tried to say, yeah, even if we try to uh, have regulations on Bitcoin mining, that it shouldn't stop you from doing Bitcoin mining, this kind of thing. So it was all very much pandering to a Bitcoin audience. I think... Vivek's message from his talk was a little more, maybe a little more seeing it like he's going in there and he wants to try to downsize the Fed. So he's very public about that, that he wants to downsize the Fed and that if they attack him back, it's crucial that there's a good backup option and that's where Bitcoin comes in. So that was maybe his um, stance on the thing. Uh, and then DeSantis, obviously, people uh, famously saw him do the announcement of his presidential campaign on Twitter with Elon and uh, with David Sachs. And so uh, famously, he said, we want to protect your right to, quote unquote, do Bitcoin. So uh, I think those are probably the probably the key highlights, I would say. Um, but like you said, Jeff, it's probably likely, I mean, a, as things are currently, it looks likely that it'll just be back to Biden versus Trump and that, uh, you know, little is going to change because, as Peter said, it's really just a uni party running the show. And if it's not that, it's just this deep state who's in the background who are really pulling the strings and making moves and making things happen, you know, regardless of who's at the, you know, the figurehead at the top. But still, I mean, I saw parts of his speech. Uh, when I say his, I mean RFK Jr. at Miami. The Bitcoin conference. And yeah, I mean, he was saying you should be allowed to run your own node. So clearly 
you know, he'd done enough research on his own or had a, had a Bitcoin to write it or whatever. I mean, I thought that, I mean, the very fact that we have candidates who are like, hey, we think you ought to be able to use Bitcoin and not have to use the U.S. dollar and not be imprisoned for it. <laughs> I, I mean, that's right. I mean, that in and of itself, I guess, is, is pretty significant. I, you know, I think I think Dave's with us, Dave Smith. Dave, you were you sort of spent an hour across the table with RFK Jr. I don't recall you talking too much about Bitcoin, but I mean, what is your sense of him? Is he is he legit? Um, well, he's. He's well. Hello, everybody. First of all, I'm I'm over at my in-laws' house, and I just snuck away for a second to jump on this thing, so I could get busted at any minute and brought back. Uh, but um, I I think he's legit in the sense that he believes what he's saying, and he's a very impressive guy and a very smart guy. That's my impression of him. Uh, you know, again, this is from an an hour conversation, and then maybe like a half hour outside of when we were we were recording. Um, but I think that. All of these things, there's just something very interesting about his campaign. And I think from our perspective, or a lot of the perspective of people who are listening here, even if, you know, I've seen some people who are like, well, he was saying some very bad things a few years ago, and now he seems to be saying something different. Even if it were the case that he's pandering to people who think the way a lot of us do, I think in some sense, that's kind of a good sign. that That's what politicians feel like they have to do in order to get some traction going if they're not propped up by the establishment. So I find that encouraging. And I just find a lot of things about his campaign to be interesting. I think he's he's single-handedly forcing a conversation on several different fronts that would not be happening if he weren't running for president. But we have we have, you know, at least a few Democrats on the House Financial Services Committee. I mean, who, who would literally say, you know, this this should be Bitcoin should be banned. It should be illegal, which would presumably mean you go to jail for using it. Um, but we, to, to my knowledge, maybe Biden's the avatar, but to my knowledge, you know, we don't have any presidential candidates saying that. And we see this new Bitcoin ETF, you know, uh, OK, it's, it's BlackRock. That doesn't make us happy, um, it, you know, but n- nonetheless, it almost seems like Hayek's idea of a competing currency um, sort of gaining traction quietly under the radar is, is happening with Bitcoin, and that you know that it's 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 a little bit out ahead of these these guys' appetites to to destroy it. I mean, I, I hope that's the case. I, it would be interesting to see one presidential candidate at least come out and say, "I'm totally against it. We use the U.S. dollar here. This is for." You know, money laundering and drug traffickers and whatever they say for hiding income and and um, it should be absolutely banned and illegal. You have to use the dollar. Well, um, I don't think you know. In a way, there's. I, I don't think I've ever heard a presidential candidate come out and say, you know, I'm completely opposed to like Ron Paul's audit the Fed bill or any of these talks about ending the Fed. I'm opposed to that too. I think in a way they don't really want to promote any of these ideas. They don't want people who maybe haven't heard about this stuff to even hear about it. But I think there have been, like you said, on on House committees. Also, wasn't it? I believe it was last year. I'm, I'm blanking. I believe it was the uh, the chairman of the European Central Bank. Was that? Am I right about that? Was that the one who said the thing about how how much of a threat this is because it undermines, you know, our ability to control currency and all of these things? So I think there are. Well, do you mean Do you mean Christine Lagarde or earlier, like Mario Draghi? I'm, 
um, you know, I'm blanking on this. Maybe somebody else who has a better memory than me could. Well, could. yeah, Christine Lagarde is another. She's the European version of Lael Brainerd. She's she's another ant. You know, the the antithesis of Judy Shelton. I mean, she's everything we don't want in monetary policy, embodied in one really nasty woman who's also a felon, by the way. Don't hear that too often. <laughs> yeah, I I was I was unaware of that, but I do think you're right that this has been a thing. That is almost like with with lots of different forms of technology, it almost seems impossible to fight this flood and that it's getting so big in so many different communities. And now you see that, um, you know, uh, both with RFK and with Ramasaki, uh, uh, Ramaswamy, I'm sorry, um, it is a it is a thing that they understand that if they want to tap into this kind of anti-establishment energy, that's at least one, the, the Bitcoin wing is at least one of those wings that they have to tap into, which I think is very encouraging. Yeah, that, that's, that's an important point right here that, um, and uh, what David and Dave have both mentioned that, right, that all of the outsiders now, I mean, in a sense, they are the least beholden to the establishment. And those guys all seem to have arrived at the same conclusion, which is that nobody likes the Fed. You know, there was a time where attacking the Fed was like crazy land, right? That would, you know, mark you as a fringe candidate. We've got the number two Republican candidate, DeSantis. We have the number two Democrat candidate at the moment. All right, these are not ridiculous fringe candidates. And they have both concluded that being you know, unabashedly pro-Bitcoin, never attacking it, always encouraging it, and being unabashedly anti-Fed are the way to go. So I think the needle is moving a ways. You know, Joe Biden is 80-something. Uh, Trump is getting along in years. Uh, you know, all of the guys in this race who are either younger or who are our, our outsiders, they believe what we all believe. This is kind of impressive. In case anyone thinks I was being hyperbolic, you can look it up. Christine Lagarde avoids jail, keeps job after guilty verdict in negligence trial. So she was enmeshed in a controversy over paying taxpayer money to bail out a French businessman. So anyway, you can look that up. Um, who can, can we ask who, who might speak to uh, Vivek Ramaswamy? Oh, I just had him on, by the way. Oh, yeah, really? so the episode just got released uh, either earlier today or yesterday, but it's up. Did he talk about anything related to monetary policy? No, we, we didn't get into monetary policy. We talk, he talked a lot about um, the, the deep state and his plans of really working uh, against them. He was, he was very good on uh, the war in Ukraine, very good on um, kind of the shadow government and deep state stuff. But unfortunately, he didn't, he didn't have that much time and we didn't get into the monetary stuff. Yeah, he, he's, he's spoken against the Fed. Um, Vivek has actually criticized the Fed causing boom-bust cycles, quote-unquote. Uh, his narrative at the moment is that they held rates too low for too long and then they hiked too fast. So, I mean, that is completely Austro-friendly. Uh, he's gone after the Fed for the dual mandate, which all Republicans do, meaning that um, the dual mandate is the idea that the Fed balances inflation with artificial stimulation of the economy. Uh, so, I mean, he's he's been solid across the board in attacking the Fed specifically. Yeah, his so I heard him his his take from what I understand is that he wants to return them uh, or, or uh, return them. He wants to abolish the dual uh, um, policy and uh, or the dual mandate. And he wants them to focus uh, simply on, on currency stability, which, I, you know, I don't love exactly. I don't know if that's exactly the message I would want out there. But I, I'll say that any time. A presidential candidate is talking about the Federal Reserve and being critical of them. That pleases me because I think a lot of 
uh, people like us, uh, it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that so many Americans still just have no idea what the Federal Reserve even is. And just to insert that issue into the popular consciousness is valuable. Well, from what I can tell, he's basically the only candidate who mentions the Fed on his campaign website. I mean, these campaign websites are just such a joke. You'd think they would have a quick menu with a good, strong paragraph summary on major issues. They do not have those things. They are just full of pop-ups to get you to give. Give today, $25, you know, that kind of crap immediately bombards you. Um, but, you know, I, I thought maybe, you know, I thought I might ask Jordan who is who is a true Florida man uh, to to give us a little bit more on DeSantis? I know you follow him more closely. I mean, he, I, you know, he's a smart guy, right? He doesn't come across intellectual, but do you think he knows a little monetary policy? Yeah, I think he's learning and willing to learn, and the willingness to learn, I think, is what separates him from a lot of um, his the other fellow candidates in the pack. You know, there's kind of like two different people two different kinds of people in this world. There's like people that are stuck in their ways and there's people that are willing to learn. And I definitely put DeSantis in the latter camp. Um, you know, in Florida here, he's um, taken a big initiative to go after um, preemptively the idea of the imposition of a central bank digital currency system. So he is reading and is very well aware of like kind of like the global ruling classes plans to devise this system and implement it where you're basically in enslaved um, specifically with the Federal Reserve. I don't know exactly where he's at on that. You know, I'm not a, a I'm, I'm a big supporter of his, but I'm not like a surrogate or anything like that. Um, he's, you know, certainly pro Bitcoin. Um, in, in Florida, you know, we have this problem, especially among like the Miami crowd where we have a lot of these like vulture VCs, crypto bros, who are trying to um, soil <laughs> the message. And I think DeSantis has done a good job at keeping them at an arm's length and focusing on the big issues, Bitcoin, CBDCs, um, monetary reform. So, so I'm, I'm encouraged by all of that. Yeah, I was going to mention um, DeSantis has, uh, he, he's actually been perfect. Um, on the Federal Reserve, like when he's criticized, he doesn't talk about it that much, right? He's, he's sort of focused on the non-monetary issues. But when he's talked about it, so his, his narrative is that the Fed caused this inflation by financing, uh, you know, federal deficits, uh, federal spending, uh, that they caused the bank crashes by hiking rates and that uh, those rates could then cause, quote, potential economic turmoil I mean, again, that's that's exactly our narrative. Um, he's criticized, you know, the billionaire bailouts of uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Um, as Jordan said, he's been really solid on CBDC. Honestly, he's been, I'd say, the strongest prominent Republican um, against CBDCs. So, I, I mean, really across the board, he has said all the right things on the Fed. I think he just doesn't focus on it that much, like tactically. Well, I want to get David Waugh take on, on all this David when I listen to these guys the, the thing is is I don't know how you reform the Fed you know on the monetary policy side or how, or how you even improve it without attacking spending I mean federal spending is the single biggest driver of inflation uh, in, in this in this you know most recent term when basically since COVID there's two huge fiscal stimulus bills six trillion dollars cash cash 
Fed had nothing to do with that. Um, uh, other than wink and a nod, you know, we'll buy any treasury debt that's issued as the buyer of last resort. So go ahead and spend your little hearts out and we can paper over the difference. I mean, the Fed's always saying that, but I mean, um, you know, do we have, is there an opportunity in 2024 to even begin to, to, you know, wrestle down the spending beast? Um, if I guess if it's if it's Trump or Biden, I would say absolutely not. Right. And especially if the um, the interest payments on debt, you know, continue to just rise to, to become, you know, one of the, the, the top um, you know categories of federal spending due to the rate hikes. But um, one thing I will say that we kind of, uh, well, two things that I, I noticed, I just want to say that uh, it was Mitt Romney, if everybody remembers, that voted against Judy Shelton. And that I remember that that oh. was really, uh, that stuck no. out to me. I was like, man, really showing your colors, right? Um, and then one difference between Trump and DeSantis, I think DeSantis is really, like you said, Jordan, open-minded, but a, a difference between Trump and previous presidents, do you remember how Trump would just tweet about the stock market like every day? You know, that was like, it was almost like he measured the economy based on, you know, the S&P. And if it wasn't going in the direction he wanted, he would criticize Powell, right? And like he used Powell as like a tool to influence the S&P, right? And, and Biden hasn't done that at all, right? Biden's basically, you know, because it's been convenient for him kind of... uh ceded power to the experts of, of Powell, right? Um, but I think that to answer your question about reforming fiscal policy, it would take a really, a really brave politician. And I mean, DeSantis, DeSantis might be able to do it. Vivek, I don't, I think he's, he's a, a smart guy and, and makes good points. I don't think he's electable in this cycle. And RFK Jr., for all his However much I love I love him on Bitcoin, he he doesn't have the same uh, poignant critiques of the Fed that Vivek and DeSantis do. So I don't think like I see RFK being great for Bitcoin, but not really RFK Jr., but not really being uh, as good on fiscal policy. Yeah, if you go to the to their websites again, don't don't do this <laughs> because they're absolutely pathetic. Um but they all have these hokey, like Vivex is, it's all about woke and the woke mob. Yeah, that's what you see. And um, RFKs is revitalization, which is sort of build back better. So, I mean, I mean to me, RFK Jr.'s biggest selling point is that, well, and I talked to Dave Smith about this a few months back. First of all, he doesn't appear to hate your guts. You know, it's like you look at the guy you're like, hey, this guy doesn't hate my guts. Uh, you know, and so our standards for how we choose a presidential candidate have lowered a bit. Like, so you start with that, you know, the, the X factor, the likability factor, you know, charisma, he's a Kennedy and all that. But, but beyond that, um, you know, j just the idea that he wants to talk about issues in a, a way that, you know, he shouldn't let his team give him these stupid talking points like revitalization. When he talks about bringing people back together and ending 
the um, you know how fractured America is, uh, how it divided is. You know that's that's not really likely. That's that's just campaign puffery. But nonetheless, you can see the allure of that. Like like people, you know, they'd give anything just to go back to that kind of sleepy normal feeling they had about politics before Trump. Um, that things are just kind of okay and you don't have to worry about it and be so exercised and your, you know, your neighbors aren't putting some sign in their yard that basically puts you on notice that you're a Nazi. Um, you, you know, people want that back. And I don't think we're getting that back. I mean, to me, uh, RFK ought to be avoiding the platitudes. He had a platitude candidate uh, and, and Bitcoin would, would fit right in there. But he, here he is. I mean, I don't know if people saw, but he's, put out something horrible yesterday on the Supreme Court affirmative action decision. And, you know, I mean, is, is he meaningfully want to cut spending? When I say cut spending meaningfully, what we all know is that means entitlements and defense. If, if you can't cut those two things and not just cut the rate at which the, what we spend on those things, goes, I mean, actual cuts, you know, then the rest of the spending is almost kind of superfluous because those two things alone and now interest on the national debt, those will more than eat up tax receipts. Uh, so uh, so I'll just throw it to the panel. I mean, are there any, you know, can we, is Gavin Newsom a possibility? Is is someone like uh, Michelle Obama a possibility? Is Hillary a possibility still? Um, even, even Mitt Romney, uh, to his shame, to his eternal discredit, um, has, has suggested he might run. I mean, is, is there anybody out there? Uh, well, I'd, I'd say I, I think Gavin Newsom is definitely a possibility. I mean, I think uh, I think the Democratic Party is in a bit of a bind where I think there's a lot of people who are thinking about ditching Joe Biden, but they don't want to go with Kamala Harris, and he's the most next the next most likely guy. I don't think Mitt Romney is a possibility. I just think he's been so thoroughly rejected by their base. Uh, you know, he came out and made that big call uh, to abandon Donald Trump in 2016, and it didn't move the needle one point. And I think that was the end of, of Mitt Romney being a viable alternative for the Republican. I think even the Republican establishment would recognize that, that they're, they're be more likely to try to co-opt um, uh, DeSantis or something like that. I, I just don't see that happening. You know, to, to the point you made about RFK, I think he really believes in that stuff about uniting the country. I think he's got the perspective, which, look, let's let's be real. Uh, growing up as Bobby Kennedy's kid, he does not have like an everyman perspective. This is a guy who grew up, has lived his whole life in a bubble. But he tells the story about after his father was killed and how he took this... Uh, this, this train from like New York to DC and it took like 12 hours because there were so many people flooding the tracks just with signs that we love the Kennedys and I think he remembers a time like that and, and, and desires to bring the country back to a place where we weren't all at each other's throats so much. I mean I think it's a fool's errand. I don't think it's going to happen but I think he means that. My, my personal view of, of all of this stuff and I think I, my guess would be that you'd agree with me on this Jeff because I know you've said this about Trump before the, I, I, I think that we do not really live in a democracy, and I think there is a 0% chance that Donald Trump will be president again, and I don't mean that he can't win an election. I mean, I do not think these people will allow him to be seated as president again, no matter what that may take. I think the same is true for RFK. I just think he's a no-go for the, you know, the establishment. So to me, the value of someone like RFK is not 
will he cut spending or not cut spending? No, I don't think he really understands the, you know, the degree in which that is the, the real problem that needs to be tackled. But what RFK does have and what Donald Trump does have is that they're willing to have the conversations that you're not allowed to have. And I think that's the value that they bring to the table is that they will go into these areas. You know, uh, that that's kind of the thing that RFK has been doing a lot. Whether you agree with him on all the issues or not, he's willing to have these conversations that you're you're by the rules not allowed to have. Yeah. And, and I'll just add, it, it was wonderful to hear uh, RFK, you know, as a Democrat, you know, air quotes, but still say say the word populist in a in a in a like a positive with a positive spin but one thing I'd, I'd love to just to raise is the the longer biden stays in the race and rfk is polling at like 20 percent, doesn't it make it harder to just switch biden for newsom like newsom's not going to come in polling as high as i mean maybe he comes in higher but it, d- doesn't it make it more challenging for that switch out to happen the longer biden stays in the race yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that they've kind of reached the point of no return, David. I, I think you're right that he will literally have to die for them to uh, switch him out at this point. I mean, I don't know if it was really popular on social media, but he's like, you know, the dementia is clearly in, in reaching a new stage. But, you know, we're so close. We're not super close to the Iowa caucus, but... We're, we're at the point where, you know, they're going to have to make moves like right now. And I think Jeff made, made a really good point that it's not going to be the right. It's going to be the corporate media. And if you see something weird happening in the corporate media, like they're actually taking an active interest into the Biden family's um, overt and obvious corruption and bribery schemes, then, you know, it's like it, it's a big signal that they're going to replace him. But I haven't seen it yet. And, and, and you know, they just the uh, the feds just struck that um, slap on the wrist deal with Hunter Biden. Um, they could have done much worse to him. So that indicates that, you know, the leverage is now gone. Um, so to me, I don't see any signs that that Gavin Newsom can replace him at this point. It's just it, it's seemingly becoming too late. Well, and if you remember, Biden really didn't even campaign last time. I mean, it was 2020. COVID was unrolling throughout that year, and he just stayed home. You know, he he had a, a very light schedule. He 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 sure as hell didn't stand in front of a microphone or a podium or on a stage and explain, uh, you know, the relationship between the Fed and the Treasury and deficit spending. I mean, you know, this is like I mean, he's barely even talking to the public, and he he might do that again. I mean, I I I just think. And I think from from our perspective or from the perspective of many people here, I think RFK did himself uh, some severe damage yesterday. Um, you know, guns and affirmative action are both, uh, you know, the, the kind of things that go to someone's real, they really go to the, someone's worldview. It's deeper than just the issue itself. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the fact that he's willing to sit there and discuss things with some historical context with some knowledge, with some obvious intelligence. And, and you notice, I, I'd like to comment on this, you notice, you know, Vivek's doing this too, but RFK Jr.'s doing, they, they're doing podcasts. I mean, they're not, they're not worried about CNN as much. They're going on podcasts like Dave. They're going on kinds of podcasts. And that strikes me as, as what you have to do, that the, that the internet has radically changed um, 
presidential campaigns forever. And let's hope that there's a guerrilla warfare approach that these, you know, that these less uh, establishment candidates can can make use of. Well, and, and, and that's potentially a game changer. I think all of us on this call generally focus on podcasts. Um, there is no energy in TV. When I go on TV, I get zero reaction. A mid-sized TV, or rather a mid-sized podcast, is a bigger deal than you know going on Fox primetime. And I think that's exciting, and I think that's part of the reason why all these outsider candidates are attacking the Fed and are supporting Bitcoin is that, you know, the gatekeepers don't have the monopoly that they used to have. Uh, there are a lot more ways to get out there. I agree that RFK made a big tactical mistake. He was cruising just fine. He was getting a lot of attention, cross-party among independents. And, you know, he didn't learn what Trump knew, which is that you always stay loyal to the people who brought you in. You know, Trump did, never said a bad word about the people that, in his mind, fundamentally brought him to the White House. Uh, I don't know why RFK did that. Um, he shouldn't have because, I mean, he was on track to inherit the Trump anti-elite um, audience. And most Americans at this point despise the elite, whether it's left or right. There is no energy in the elite. You know, you look at a tweet out of the New York Times, and they have 55 million followers. Their tweets will get like 80 likes. There is no energy on that side. It is hollow. So I think there's a big opportunity for Candace to exploit that. RFK was doing great. I hope he gets back to that. Hey, can I just uh, real quick, Jeff? I'm, I'm sorry. I got to run in a second. But I just want to say just to kind of half defend RFK for the uh, the awful tweet about affirmative action yesterday, which I listen, I agree. I think affirmative action is, is disgusting and racist and horrible. And, and uh, I didn't like the tweet that he had. But I think, you know, it it's kind of in a way it's interesting that it's such a for for a democrat you know he, the guy is running in a democratic primary he's not donald trump you know what i mean he's 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 got to kind of talk to his base and i do think there's a little bit of a tendency from uh that i i'd say particularly within the libertarian world to really pounce on people for not being 100 percenters um the 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 truth is that I think RFK's role is to be the best liberal. And he's speaking to not just, I mean, he's not just speaking to liberals, but I think primarily the value that I see in the RFK campaign is that he's talking to a liberal base with the last name Kennedy, running as a Democrat, and giving them permission, in a sense, in the same way that Ron Paul gave a lot of conservative Republicans permission to oppose the, the warfare state. He's kind of giving them permission to oppose the COVID insanity over the last few years and so much of the corruption and the deep state and things like that. So I, I would just point out that over in my lifetime, almost every liberal has been for affirmative action and probably about half of the so-called conservatives have too. Almost every liberal has been for some form of gun control and probably half of the so-called conservatives have too. So I do think I, I hope that people don't like kind of write off this moment entirely, which I do see a lot of people really pouncing on him for it. And fair enough, it's a bad take. But I just think that, you know, a lot of times I, I know libertarians will be like, I wish he would come over and be a libertarian and run on the LP or something like that. And it's just like, 
I, I don't think the move for RFK to have this kind of like cultural moment right now would be to like become a gold bug and start reading Murray Rothbard or become, you know, like, like, it, it, you know, do something where he's going to be talking to 1% of the voting electorate rather than right now where he's polling at 20%. And I don't know that coming out hardcore, like, probably you're right. He just shouldn't have said anything about it. But you, I, I don't want him to be a right winger or a libertarian. I just want him to be the best liberal. Um, I'm sorry, guys. I got to run, but this has been this has been great. I'm glad I got to make it for a little bit. All right, Dave. Thanks. Well, it is interesting. You know, you poll this stuff, and as a word, you know, there's there's a lot of polling today in uh, not just political polling, but also marketing polling, and the term diversity actually does does far better. The term affirmative action is just really polls poorly it's hated and not just by white folks um it, it's really a deeply unpopular concept in the united states and and really almost un-american i think in the views of a lot of people and so i think rfk june democrat you know the, the idea of the black experience or the black cause is just woven into his dna i mean if you look at his dad and his uncle and that period in American history. I mean, I, you know, I think it's just, so I, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to write the guy off about it, but it, it just, it would be interesting if we had polling or data that talked about the fed that talked about monetary policy. And, and really there's, there's an opportunity here for a candidate to use it as a populist wedge issue. Um, it, I, I will say that monetary policy has an uncomfortable degree of, um, of, of generational warfare behind it. In other words, you can make a pretty strong case that baby boomers um, rode a, a really exceptional time in the West and bought houses when they were cheap and did a lot of things. And now um, Social Security is going to last for them. Um, they they all bought their houses in 90, uh, you know, um, all kinds of things that make under 40s unhappy and i i would argue rightfully so um there, there's an opportunity for someone to say well the fed's behind a lot of this and that there's all these cultural ramifications as to why you are sitting there with a hundred grand in debt from a, you know for your ba in psychology from state U, and you know you're working at starbucks and your rent's 1200 bucks and any kind of condo you'd want in your town starts at two hundred eighty thousand dollars or something. So, so this is a populist thing. Some somebody has to be, you know, Trumpy with this. Yeah, absolutely. And and there is one poll. There is one poll that's the the confidence in Federal Reserve Chair to like do the right thing, basically. That's administered by Gallup, and it was in two thousand and two. Uh, almost 80% under Greenspan. And right now it's the lowest it's ever been for Powell at 36%. So there is one poll. Wow. That's Gallup? Yeah. Wow. Well, I want to, we're, we're coming up yeah, again. No, but I, I want to hear from Stefan um, a, a little more on his, his thoughts about whether, you know, is this thing just so broken uh, that there's no pulling back on the Fed or, and it's just, uh, or, or is there something that can be done? So, yeah, I, now I say this, obviously, just to be clear, I'm not an American. I don't live in America. I am an Australian living in the UAE. So what do I know? Right. But, um, I, my view of it is that 
there's just too much machinery in America that will just keep things running in, in, in this, in this certain pathway, regardless of what the voters want, right. Regardless of what the masses really want, unless, you know, unless you can really rile up a big group of them. And I think maybe that's where I agree a lot with what Dave, Dave Smith was saying earlier about the value of candidates like RFK Jr. is not, is not necessarily that we're going to turn them into a libertarian. It's that, we're, that he's going to give them, give the population permission to get angry about something, whether that's, the Fed, or as you said, the generational warfare of boomers doing really well out of, you know, the Federal Reserve uh, and just the timing of things, right? That they kind of got lucky with the timing that they could buy houses that are nice or relatively lower price. They could get the welfare state and they could get all of these things. I just think there's too many constituencies to actually shut these things down now. There's too many constituencies hmm. that will not allow the welfare state to be uh, reduced or minimized. And so I think because of that, they will have to eventually, you know, whether it's sooner or later, they're going to have to run the printers again. Yes, right now the narrative is, okay, we're going higher for longer or rates are going higher. Um, so it's, in my view, it's a waiting game and that, that they will have to eventually uh, run the printers again because, of course, everyone here on this basis and our listeners are probably focused and thinking about it but most people out there are not and so the deep state will do what the deep state needs to do to keep it going well we gotta i, I want to give david the last word david Wah, but before um i, I want to make sure that everybody is following and subscribing with peter st Ange over at heritage i know he's got a subscriber thing on twitter and jordan Schachtel's um substack the dossier is excellent i mean he's like a a really interesting, almost investigative reporter. And there's just, I, I mean, when you read the lapdog press and it's just, you know, it's just so bad that we need these, uh, we need these sub stackers out there folks. Um, but anyway, David, why don't, why don't you just wrap it up for us? We've got about a minute or two left. Sure. Uh, I would say just to everybody to have a, honestly, have a great weekend. And uh, you mentioned Peter's Substack. I would uh, point everybody to read his uh, his one next step in the bank crisis because I read that one earlier today and it's fantastic. So just to everybody, have a great weekend. Yeah, happy Fourth of July to everybody. We're always going to be here on Fridays at two Eastern talking about money and culture and civilization. So stay tuned. We'll we'll be here next week. Thanks a million to Jordan, to Stefan, to Peter, to David. A little drop in from from Dave Smith, famous comedian formerly based in New York City. So we'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody.